Hi, welcome to the Kelly Cutrera podcast. Today, reaction to the finance minister Bill Morneau's resignation from Global News's Man on the Hill, David Aiken, and conservative finance critic Pierre Polyev. And we'll talk about how the province has ended police access to the database of positive COVID cases following a lawsuit by several human rights organizations, plus the 411 on a new search and rescue technology called AquaEye. So let's get on with it. All right, so the big news other than basketball, Bill Morneau resigning yesterday, handed his resignation into the prime minister. And, you know, here to talk about this and break it down, what it actually means is Global's chief political correspondent, David Aiken. David, welcome to the show. Good to have you on. Yeah, morning, Kelly. Uh, yeah, I'm glad that Raptors game actually was early, so I got to watch that afternoon game before all that big news broke about 7 o'clock last night with uh, with Morno saying uh, so long. And, you know, he says it was resign, and he gave some answer that he decided to resign mm-hmm. a y- less than a year after Toronto Centre voters put him back in as MP so he could go and get a job in Paris with the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. Okay, I, I'm not sure I believe that. I think it was, uh, you know, the, the, tr- tr- the Trudeau PMO, Trudeau himself and his senior staff didn't want him around. Morneau got the hint and, uh, you know, call it a, you got quit. You know what I'm saying? Right. So he's out. Let me ask, and now we're going to okay, hear about this. a new one today. Right. Um, and before we get to who we hear is going to take over that position, let's talk about, you know, a little bit about, break it down what Morneau said. He said he never intended to... Uh, to uh, be there for more than two elections. And he, now with a long view of the difficult economic recovery ahead, he thinks it's a good time for someone to step aside um, so that someone else can make a long-term commitment. Does he have a point? Like, is there a point there? Or how is this timing for Canadians? No. (laughs) No, he just got elected again. Uh, Remember, that we were less than a year from him telling voters in Toronto Centre, I need your vote because I've got work to do and we wanted blah, blah, blah. Less than a year. We have no prospect of an election being called. I realize it's minority government, but the NDP is supporting the Liberals. They don't want an election right now. The Conservatives are just about to name a new leader on Saturday. It's going to be a little while before they're election ready. So this idea that you want to quit as a finance minister of a G7 country on the spec, you get this, you know, head of a think tank in Paris, and there's lots of competition for this job. It's not a guarantee that he gets it. It, it really stretches the, it, you know, I'm, I'm sorry. It's, it's really difficult to take that at face value. I realize that, you know, politically, Morno doesn't want to blow up the team. He still has some loyalty, has a bit of grace and dignity, I guess, as well. I, I, you, know, you have to give him that. And he didn't mm-hmm. want to go out guns blazing at his former colleagues. And so, this story about the OECD position was trotted out. I'm told by aides in his office that he had been musing about this for a few weeks, but we've never heard it publicly. Um, but I think it's pretty clear that there had become uh, some sort of rift between Morno and Trudeau on some issues around policy. And then this whole thing with the We Charity and Morno's Morno's particular involvement with the We Charity, getting that free travel worth 41000 bucks, money he had to repay, and then the, his his family's own connections to the We Charity um, just became a little much for uh, mm-hmm. Trudeau and the PMO. And, and, and so there's been a parting of the ways. I mean, th- there's a variety of things, but at the end of the day, the finance minister and the prime minister didn't see eye to eye on a few things. And the prime okay. minister, like, the prime minister is not going to quit. Right. I want to bring up a couple of things here that you touched on. First of all, the We scandal. Is this enough to get the We stink off of Trudeau? 
I don't. Well, we've already heard from the opposition this morning. Pierre Poliev, the conservative critics, went out. And no, I don't think so, because, I mean, the prime minister himself uh, is sort of implicated with some dodgy ethics on the Wee scandal. The prime minister is under investigation by the ethics commissioner over the Wee scandal. That said, I think... It, much like the SNC-Lavalin matter, You're, we all remember that, where Jody Wilson-Raybould oh, yeah. had to leave and Jane Philpott had to leave. And there was a big hit that Trudeau took in the polls, you know, within days of sort of that scandal, sort of the fullness of it developing. But months later, once the, the ethics commissioner concluded that, yes, Trudeau did violate ethics laws in the Jody Wilson-Raybould SNC-Lavalin matter, it, it, the, the public opinion had been baked in. And I think that we have seen a lot of polls this summer, uh, towards the end of this summer, where Trudeau's own approval and the Liberals' fortunes have dropped a bit. There was an outlier poll yesterday from Main Street, which shows the Liberals up by 12 on the Conservatives. I'm not sh sure about that. But all the other polls show you know, a shrinking Liberal lead over the Conservatives within you know three or four or five points. Um, and again, that's without a Conservative leader. So I think it has already impacted politically the Liberal fortunes. Does it continue to do so? I really think that's going to depend on how well the conservatives can pick things up, and that really depends on who they select as leader. Um, voting ends Friday. I want to ask you um, about something else you touched on, and I'm glad you brought up the SNC-Lavalin uh, topic because that scandal is uh, is directly, you know, what I immediately thought of when, you know, we heard of these clashes with the prime minister and Bill Morneau. We've been hearing, uh, you know, rumblings of it and different news reports that things weren't going so swimmingly uh, between the two for a couple of weeks now. Um, so Morneau said that the di disputes between himself and Trudeau, he defended them as, you know, he defended the value of vigorous debate within government and suggested mm -hmm. that the prime minister agreed with him about that. And I thought, well, his past behavior uh, the prime minister's past behavior with the justice minister in in the SNC Lavalin scandal is contrary to that. So, was this Morno actually taking a jab at Trudeau on his way out? At about as yeah, I guess it is about as jabby as it gets. It, it's a very subtle one. It's very polite, talking about vigorous debate and so on and so on. Um, I just think it sort of confirms for those who've been watching and trying to read the entrails and been talking to various aides on all sides. You know that yes, they they clearly did have some policy differences, and I think as we we look to his replacement, and more importantly, what policies might change, is what we're getting a sense from speaking to. And this is me speaking to caucus members and to liberal uh, aides. Is it Jonathan Wilkinson, the Vancouver-based fisheries minister? Catherine McKenna, the infrastructure minister and Ottawa MP, and Stephen Guibault, the heritage minister and Montreal MP. Wilkinson, McKenna, and Guibault definitely on the green side of the ledger in cabinet. Guibault is a former Greenpeace campaigner. That they have been pushing for uh, an economic policy that focuses on um, adapting to climate change, dealing with climate change, building a quote-unquote green economy. You've heard this phrase, build better. You know, everybody's saying it. Democrats in the United States, everybody's saying, let's come out of this COVID-19 uh, crisis, uh, build better, not build back to normal. And so there are folks in cabinet who want to use this as an opportunity to rebuild the Canadian economy, shifting away from fossil fuels and in, into the green economy. 
Bill Morneau wasn't one of those. And so if there was a division in cabinet, Morneau was definitely on the side of those who was like, we need to, we do need to get control of our spending. Uh, the transition, if we're going to have one, needs to be a little slower. And that's versus the little more uh, rapid pace that, as I say, some other members of cabinet want to move on. And presumably the prime minister uh, at this point is more inclined to uh, favor the views of McKenna, Gibo, and Wilkinson. None of right, who will be it- finance minister, I should point out. And I want to get to that, um, the, the person that is tapped to become finance minister. But I do want to touch on this. Is it true that Bill quitting after five years means that he's not going to get a pension? Oh, geez, I haven't even calculated that. I don't think he needs a pension. I'm sure, surely you must know, Kelly. He married, Jen, but the you know, uh, into the McCain fortune. But yeah. Yeah, I th- I think you need I think it's six. You know, I, I to be honest, I haven't prepared for that. I could look it up. I think you need six yep. years of service before you get qualified. But um, geez, if he doesn't get a pension, too bad for him. Uh, <laughs> as I say, I don't think I don't think he needs it, and I don't. I certainly don't think that was part of his calculation about when to uh, when to exit. Take off, right? Uh, Christian Freeland. She is tapped to become Canada's first finance minister. Is there any truth in that? Because we're hearing about that now. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think there is. Uh, so I was talking to some sources in, in Morno's office last night, and, uh, you know, the quote I got was, Katie wants Christian in. And Katie is Katie Telford, the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff, the only Chief of Staff the Prime Minister's had. Trudeau and Telford are, are uh, as, as thick as thieves, are very close. Uh, and then this morning we've seen a couple of news organizations say, yes, it's Freeland. We're getting radio silence today from the PMO, but we are expecting a ceremony this afternoon uh, and Freeland of course it'll be a big deal if she's named finance minister uh, because we've never had a woman in the job and you know there are some things that are important uh, sort of to demonstrate some glass ceilings every now and again that need to be broken and here will be Freeland breaking another one so uh, so Freeland will be the finance minister and she'll keep her role as deputy prime minister we understand she may she's also got the role of intergovernmental affairs minister and that's really been a portfolio in which she's been able to reach out to premiers primarily in the west premier kenny in alberta uh, premier pallister in manitoba premier moe in saskatchewan um, and she's developed a reasonable working relationship with those premiers who are all conservatives and all are ideologically opposed to a lot of the quote climate policies of the trudeau government but Freeland's been able to win their respect, at least, if not agreement on some things. So she's going to, I'm, I'm not sure where she goes with that. I think it's going to go to Dominic LeBlanc. He is a New Brunswick MP, and he's in cabinet right now with a really sort of not much to do because he'd been recovering from uh, from some, some blood cancer. And it looks like his health is better. It's recovered. He is very close with the PM. Trudeau, actually, Dominic LeBlanc used to be Justin Trudeau's babysitter way back in the day. Dominic's dad was the governor general, Romeo LeBlanc, and Dominic used to babysit young Justin at Pierre's house. So these guys go back a long way. And so it'll be Dominic who is Dominic LeBlanc who will now be sort of the point man with, with Premier Ford here in Ontario, Premier Kenny, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that may be about it. And that would make sense. I don't think Trudeau wants to have, you know, start moving justice ministers and health ministers. You get into some pretty serious uh, major things if you do that. I think, mm-hmm. you know, keep the ship sailing pretty much. Just have a new finance minister and move a little bit of what Christopher Freeland was doing off to an existing cabinet minister. That's what we're expecting. But we'll see. I think this afternoon is when we're going to have uh, something at Rideau Hall go down. Well, I appreciate your time, David. As always, thank you so much for joining us on the program. Yeah, no problem. Cheers. That's David Aiken, Global's Chief 
a political correspondent talking about Christian Freeland. Um, she could be the new uh, finance minister after Bill Morneau resigned yesterday. Did he resign or was he ousted? Hmm. All right. Well, uh, we got to go with what they're telling us. He said, hey, I never intended to be here for more than two elections. And with the long view of the difficult economic recovery ahead. I think it's a good time for me to step aside. Everybody else with me on this? I mean, we need somebody who can make a long-term commitment, and that was never part of my plan. I'd like to welcome to the program conservative finance critic Pierre Polyev. Welcome to the show. Good to have you on. Great to be with you. So do you buy the story Morneau's trying to sell about his resignation? No, and neither does he. Bill Morneau resigned because he's about to be found guilty uh, for a second and third time uh, of violating the Ethics Act by taking uh, a $41,000 uh, illegal vacation from a, a group to which he was directing a half a billion dollar grant. Uh, that's clearly illegal. Uh, and the prime minister didn't want to have that kind of a scandal in the center of his cabinet. But they had to make up this phony excuse because, of course, the prime minister is, himself is is going to be found guilty for a third time of breaking the Ethics Act. And if he sets the standard that you have to resign at three strikes, you're out, well, then he'd have to resign too. Right, but if we're talking about Morneau resigning after two strikes, um, Trudeau's already there. He is, and that's why they had to make up this phony excuse about how he um, was only, only wanted to stick around for a short time. Um, but you're right. Uh, frankly, Bill Morneau is a Boy Scout next to Justin Trudeau. Trudeau became the first prime minister to ever be found guilty of violating the Ethics Act. Not once, but twice. First time was when he accepted a $200,000 vacation from someone he gave a $15 million government grant. The second time was when he interfered in the criminal prosecution of the liberal-linked SNC-Lavalin, and now we learn that he personally intervened to give a half billion dollars to a group that had paid his family a half million dollars, another offense under the act. We don't know, by the way, if there are criminal investigations underway because the RCMP does not reveal those publicly. Do you find it worrying at all? Because when I talk to people about Trudeau and they're like, well, what did he do? What's his track record? I'm like, how can you forget all this stuff? It seems like nothing sticks to him. Do you find it worrying uh, that the Canadian people have such a short memory, and what what will that do to our, you know, political landscape moving forward? Uh, I think Justin Trudeau thinks the rules don't apply to him; that he's uh, special because he had a very rich grandfather and a very powerful father, and he comes from a dynastic family, and so that ordinary truckers and police officers and hardworking people who pay the bills in this country have to play by one strict set of rules, but he can break them all. So there's probably going to be a cabinet shuffle today and a possible announcement of Christia Freeland as the finance minister. What do you think of the choice? Well, she was the chair of the cabinet committee that approved the grant for WE. So she is right at the center of the scandal. Uh, strange choice to put the, the person who presided over this scandal in charge of trying to do damage control for it. He's also got some strange ideas, and for most liberals, they like raising taxes. For her, it's a religion. She actually said, amen to raising taxes. So hold on to your wallet. What's the, in the context of what? 
She believes the government should be bigger, should be more and more programs. And of course, she believes that you have to raise taxes uh, to pay for that kind of extravagant big government. So expect that if she's your finance minister, she'll be digging deep into your wallet to pay for all the spending schemes that she and Trudeau dream up. Okay, I just want to ask you about this because I think it's important. Most people are probably listening right now or are thinking the same here. If she was the chair of the cabinet that helped um, award, you know, we the the opportunity to hand out the grant money. um, Is it possible that she had no idea about Bill Morneau's uh, debt to them that he paid back and had no idea about the prime minister's family members being paid by that organization? Well, she gets briefed. Um, She should have asked questions. She should have asked if there was anyone in the government who was in a conflict of interest. Um, But she didn't ask any of those questions. She just wanted to shovel the money out as quickly as possible to this uh, liberal-linked group. Uh, And uh, so she is responsible. She was at the heart of this scandal from the very beginning. Very strange choice to put someone who uh, was at the heart of the scandal and presided over it, it in charge of trying to do damage control for it. Bill Morneau, it's going to be very hard for him to separate himself from this scandal. Um, He is, uh, of course, he's resigned. But do you think this is an attempt to get the stink of the Wee scandal off of Trudeau, a little distraction? Yes, uh, they they want Trudeau to be the fall, sorry, they want Morneau to be the fall guy. The problem is that Morneau hasn't done anything that Trudeau didn't do. Trudeau uh, has accepted hundreds of thousands of dollars of free vacations from people whom he's given government money. Trudeau, uh, Trudeau's family, received half a million dollars from the WE network uh, before he gave them a half a billion dollars. So, frankly, the only difference is the scale. Trudeau's family received far more money from the WE organization than Morneau did. Uh, And so it's, as I said earlier, Morneau is a Boy Scout next to Trudeau on this scandal. I wasn't expecting to hear uh, Christia Freeland being tapped as the uh, finance minister. I had heard last week they were considering Mark Carney as a replacement for Bill Morneau, the former head of the uh, Bank of Canada. Would you have preferred Mark Carney? Well, it would have at least created the perception of distance between uh, the office and the scandal. All right. You know, Mark Mark Carney is not in the government, um, but uh, with Freeland, uh, she is the scandal. She's the chair of the committee that approved this massive handout to the WE organization. Um, she has a, a track record of uh, extreme and uh, bizarre comments about taxes, about tax increases. Uh, and of course, she failed in her negotiations with Donald Trump, uh, giving us a deal that allowed Trump to walk all over us with brand new tariffs uh, just imposed a couple of weeks ago. So with that kind of record of failure um, and her link to the scandal, it seems like a very strange choice uh, that they would put her in charge. And we'll find out with an official announcement this afternoon if it is indeed Christia Freeland. Um, When can we expect the Conservative Party um, to try and force an election? Uh, When it's in the interests of Canadians. I don't have a date uh, or a month. Right now, we are a strengthened opposition with increased numbers from the last election. And uh, we are going to use those numbers and the weak minority in which Trudeau finds himself to hold him accountable and uh, expose this corruption. 
so that when Canadians eventually do go to the polls, they know the full truth. Okay, say it's the fall. Are you worried about the prospect of of having to campaign for a federal election at the same time Canadians are basically paying attention to the election race in the U.S.? Uh, I don't see a link between them. They're, They're totally different issues and separate decisions for the relative populations to make. Uh, But uh, we'll focus our time here in Ottawa on holding the government accountable, getting to the truth and putting forward real proposals to save our economy from its present collapse. Pierre, I want to thank you for your time today. Great to be with you. Have a great day. That's Conservative finance critic Pierre Polyev talking about uh, Bill Morneau's resignation, the possibility of Christia Freeland taking over as finance minister and what he thinks of the choice. Bah! is what I'm going to, if I, if I was to pick one word that can encapsulate what he thinks of the choice, bah, not good, not good at all. Well, Ontario has ended police access to a COVID-19 database after a legal challenge was filed by a group of human rights organizations, one of them being the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, Abby Deshman, director of the criminal justice program for the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, joins us now to talk about it. Welcome to the show. Hi, good morning. So the lawsuit against the province has been dropped um, with the news that the government is, has ended police access to the database. But maybe you could give us the broad strokes on, on your legal argument and why you opposed it. Sure. So this was a database that was created in the early days of the pandemic, um, and it shared the names, dates of birth and addresses of people, everyone in Ontario who had tested positive for COVID, um, the police. We were really concerned um, once we first got wind of this. Uh, This is obviously very personal medical information. People who are getting tested were not told uh, that this information would be shared with law enforcement. And we really couldn't see what the utility of sharing this information was. You know, we are in a health crisis, obviously, but we are being told we need to take universal precautions. We don't know, um, particularly because there's asymptomatic transmission, we don't know who might um, present a health risk, be carrying COVID and present a health risk. So having a list of individuals, their names, um, dates of birth sent to police of people who've tested positive uh, is really a partial list. It doesn't present a full picture of um, COVID transmission. And there were no, uh, you know, dates when people had been tested. So your name could be on there from the first, second week um, and still be in that database in July. So really not a useful tool uh, to protect health and safety and sharing of incredibly sensitive personal information. You know, I think we all understand the the need for the, the public health officials to have this information and the government to have this information so that they can uh, create policies to keep us safe. But why did we do you did you ever get an answer as to why the police would need access to positive COVID cases and the data there? Yeah, we never got um, a good answer about that. You know, there was a news release when uh, this emergency regulation was passed that sort of said we need to let first responders protect their own health and safety. Um, But we sent a letter to the government asking for more details about how this was going to help them, what additional precautions beyond universal precautions uh, they were going to be able to take if they found that a person had at some point tested positive for COVID, never received a response, waited for weeks. um, And uh, obviously it wasn't until we filed our legal challenge um, that the government uh, took any steps on this file. Now, is this all over now that the government has said, well, the police are not going to be able to access the COVID-19 data anymore? 
Yeah, I wish it was all over. So certainly um, the database is no longer accessible by police. That is uh, really good. Um, but we know that police accessed this database over 95,000 times in the few weeks that it was active. That is an enormous number of search queries uh, against this database. So um, police have been using this database. They have been accessing the personal health information of Ontarians. And we really don't know what they've done with that data that they have already accessed, seen, and perhaps stored locally. So we've written to the police services across the province. Um, we, we got uh, information about which services had used the database, which had used it most. So we've written to the police services, the chiefs of police, the police service boards to ask those questions and ask that they take immediate steps to delete any personal health information um, that they uh, copied into the local databases um, from this provincial database. Just out of curiosity, because I have to ask, which services used it most? Yeah, so the top users were Durham Regional Police Service, Thunder Bay Police Service, York, uh, London, and Hamilton. So all of those police services access the database over 10,000 times. Durham is the most at uh, over 24,000 search queries. But if you look at it per capita, and that's really important because, you know, some police services serve very low numbers of people in Ontario, uh, the biggest user is Thunder Bay Police Service. So they, hmm. per capita, they accessed um, it at a rate more than 10 times the provincial average, uh, over 14,500 search queries for a relatively small uh, segment of the Ontario population. So we've asked uh, Thunder Bay for a full and public audit. Uh, we have no idea why um, they would be such an outlier uh, in terms of the number of searches they ran. And we're, we're really concerned that um, this database was not being used appropriately. And we want to know what happened uh, to the information that they accessed and, and why their numbers are so high. Okay. So do you have access to, to what is in the database? Obviously, it's COVID positive, uh, the names of people. I would imagine health card information is there, but can we assume that there's everything from phone numbers to um, addresses and the like? Yeah, the law set out um, exactly what was accessible to police. So it was names, addresses, and date of birth, um, and uh, only for people who had tested positive. So that should have been the extent of the information that was available. I just, I mean, I'm, I'm racking my brain for why the police would need access to this. And the only thing I'm thinking is they could type in an address if there's a call to that address and see if someone tested positive for COVID and make sure that they have all their protocol in place when they respond. Yeah, I think that was I think that was the idea. And certainly when you talk about um, health and safety precautions for police to take um, in interacting with the public, I think that's the type of thing that was contemplated. You know, the problem is uh, it's not a complete list of the health risks that are mm -hmm. um, in our community. And uh, police need to be taking universal precautions as much as they can within the context of their job. Um, so the added information that's here, you know, what more could police do beyond the universal precautions that would they already should be taking um, based on this information. You know, that's what, uh, when we talked to medical experts and for our litigation, we absolutely did um, speak to uh, health professionals and epidemiologists. They said, no, you know, we don't, we don't see the utility. We don't see the added public health benefit or individual benefit of this type of database, given the nature of uh, COVID. Abby, I've, I, I've, you know, consider myself fairly plugged in because of what I do for a living. I keep my eyes on, on numerous stories. This is one story that didn't catch my eye until Ontario decided to end the uh, police access to COVID-19. 
um, and the database of positive cases. Is that uh, a case of, do you think that's the norm where this story was concerned? Did it just not get a lot of traction? You know, there's been a lot going on. Um, it's been, uh, you know, a full-time job, one of my full-time jobs to try and monitor all of the emergency laws and legislation that's passed, all of the actions that various um, government agencies are taking. Um, it is a lot uh, to keep on top of. This regulation, when it was first passed, was first passed, you know, early in the pandemic. Frankly, I didn't catch it until police mm-hmm. service boards started to pass policies. So, um, yes, I think it's flown under the radar. Uh, it's unprecedented um, in terms of information sharing and health information sharing with law enforcement. Um, but I'm glad we did catch it and uh, that we were able to bring a court challenge. And I'm glad the government has decided to end. Abby, thanks so much for shedding some light on this story. I think it's an important one and just another ex- example of how we have to pay attention during this pandemic um, that our rights are not being whittled away, um, you know, um, in the uh, under the guise of, of convenience and uh, and, you know, the speed with which uh, things are, are being introduced to, to keep us safe from the pandemic. Yep, absolutely. I agree. We'll continue have watching a- and uh, hope your listeners do, too. All right. Have a great day. That's Abby Deshman. She's director of the Criminal Justice Program for the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. Last segment here. I think we better talk about the uh, fact that we had three separate water-related incidents at Bluffers Park over the weekend. And Ontario is already surpassing the total drownings um, for 2019. And so we, we talked about this yesterday with the Toronto Police Services. I was worried about Bluffers Park and possibly the hidden dangers that might be out uh, underwater. I think people get very used to living beside a large body of water and then they underestimate it. I want to welcome to uh, the program now our uh, guest to talk about water safety and also um, water rescues, CEO and founder of VotaSafe, Carlin Lonkarik. Welcome to the show. Good to have you on the show. Thanks very much for having me. Happy to be here. How did you get involved in water safety and, and where did you become interested in that? Oh, well, I, I started lifeguarding, I think, when I was 16 and I did it all throughout my undergrad and master's uh, while I was going to school. It put me through school. So um, it's been a passion for quite a, lot, a while. Okay. Now you uh, have come up with a safety technology. Um, it's, uh, tell us a little bit about it because I think it's a game changer when it comes to water rescues. Yes, for sure. So we've developed AquaEye. It's a handheld scanning sonar device that allows rescuers um, to quickly search a body of water. It can actually search up to 85,000 square feet in less than five minutes, uh, which is incredibly fast compared to anything else that's available right now. How does it work? It looks a little bit like a radar gun. It has a trigger. You just put it under the water, pull the trigger, you scan left to right, and it sends out sound signals that are then reflected and interpreted. Uh, So what you'll see on your screen is icons when you've found a person underneath the water. You'll have an X that tells you where that person is and how far away they are from you. So they're bouncing off solid matter. Um, Is there any way that it could bounce off uh, an inanimate object and give you a false positive? So it uses uh, artificial intelligence. So it actually has, um, it's been trained to recognize people. So no, it's not 100% perfect. It is a tool, but in most situations, it will only identify people in the water. Wow. And how often are marine units using this? 
Well, we launched the product late last summer, so it's been uh, with search and rescue groups for about a year, but we're just starting to slowly gain traction, which is why we're trying to get uh, educate people and make them aware that this product does exist. But it has been used in recovery situations, one in North Carolina just this past July where somebody was found in less than an hour. Uh, it was also used in Texas to recover somebody when police were out for, I believe, 16 hours uh, with a mm. side scan sonar device. And when our customers showed up, they located their subject in five minutes. Uh, it sounds like if they're looking for 16 hours, it, the you know, unfortunately, they're dealing with uh, a body now and not a person. Can it help? Uh, as far as recovering someone um, and and actually leading to a successful recovery, absolutely, it's all about time. Uh, if you the, the fact that you can deploy this in less than ten seconds, if you're on scene when something goes wrong uh, and and use this right away, then yes, you will be able to uh, locate somebody. But that's the thing is uh, that's why we're trying to get this into as many hands as possible, just so it's readily available for for lifeguards uh, and people who are actually at a situation when things can occur. You were a lifeguard for a while. What what do you think is the most important thing to keep in mind when you're living next to a big body of water like Lake Ontario? (laughs) Um, I always say respect the water, respect the ocean, uh, know your limits and learn to swim. Uh, I think a lot of people can underestimate how tired you can get when swimming. They underestimate the conditions of the water. Uh, Certain age groups, I think, are a little bit more risky uh, and definitely don't mix alcohol with water. Swimming and boating, just, just stay away. They, they're, they're definitely dangerous to, to involve together. I think when um, most of us have learned how to swim in Canada, most of us learn at a young age, and then there's this false sense of confidence that you have. It, it might be a good idea to take some refresher courses, and I'll give you an example. Uh, we were in Costa Rica, went out on a boat ride. Guy uh, takes us out. you know, we're going to do some snorkeling. The water's kind of rough, but I'm like, okay, well, I'm a confident swimmer. I've been swimming all my life. We go into the water and I realize as I'm breathing that I can hear my, my breath is labored because I'm working a lot harder than I thought because I'm in swimming in a swell uh, that is pretty big, but I'm not realizing it because I'm looking down, I'm looking for fish. And I then start to to realize, oh my gosh, my breathing's changed. I might be in Mm -hmm. trouble. And then it was like a flick of a switch, the panic that started to set in. And I cannot uh, warn people enough. This happens without you realizing. Luckily, I I yelled for help. My husband was there, kind of came to me really quickly, calmed me down, and I was all right. But I thought, Mm -hmm. boy, this is how it happens. This is how you run into trouble when you're swimming. And it happens so quickly. Are you one of those uh, folks that would advocate for, you know, going back and taking another uh, refresher course when it comes to swimming? Oh, absolutely. I 100%. I know I, we work with the Life Saving Society and they are big on education and, and training. Um, and I also think you need to remember a pool is so much more calm than in any outdoor situation. You can't see through the water. That onset of panic, it, it's, it's, it's much more terrifying when you're in open water. And I think swimming with a buddy, that's, that's also another huge one. I, swimming alone, if you're in that situation... And many times people can't call out. Uh, I think you were fortunate enough to be a strong enough swimmer to be able to do that. But a lot of people, that panic onsets. You take one gulp of water and then you're in distress. And people don't recognize how silent the whole process is. So swimming with a buddy, just being aware of, of your surroundings is huge. Um, so, yeah, I would 100% advocate for, for refresher courses. Absolutely. Be- 
Before I let you go, I want to just end on your VotaSafe Aqua Eye because I think it's a great tool. How much does it cost? And and what's the cost of getting that Aqua Eye into you know uh, into action versus a typical search? Right. So um, the product sells for less than five thousand dollars. So um, and getting it in, basically, we we do offer online training. COVID has made this a little bit more difficult, um, but we would say most of our people within half an hour of training feel confident enough to start using it. So it's it's very uh, conducive to being adopted into any search and rescue situation. Thank you so much for joining us today. I hope that uh, our Toronto Marine Safety Unit takes advantage of your invention. It sounds great. Vota Safe uh, is the company. And thank you so much for joining us, Carlin. Thank, thank you for having me. Well, that's it for the Kelly Cutrera podcast. Join me weekdays, nine till noon, live on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto.